Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Before we go on, I just want to give a quick shout out to Brilliant, who are our sponsors for this episode. Brilliant is pretty much the best place to learn math, science, and computer science online. A lot of the maths that we're taught in schools focuses on memorizing some method and getting good at repeating that method in an exam. But the best thing about Brilliant is that it actually helps you develop intuition and real understanding of the concepts. They have a great series of courses on the fundamentals of probability and statistics, which I think is a super important topic for everyone in the 21st century. Learning and understanding this stuff will really change the way you see the world. Uh, so go to brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking. And the first 200 people to sign up via that link will get 20% off an annual subscription to the site. Big thank you to Brilliant for their support. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week we've got another in-between episode because Tamor and my diaries did not match up for us to record a podcast. So we're releasing an interview that I recently did with the journalist, author and podcaster Anna Codriarado. Anna's worked for Vice and The Guardian before going freelance four years ago, and her articles now appear in The New York Times, The Guardian, BBC Wired, The Atlantic, and loads of other cool places. She's just released her first book called You're the Business, How to Build a Successful Career When You Strike Out Alone, which is all about working for yourself, uh, and it offers the insights that she's learned when she, since she went freelance. Uh, I spoke to her about the world of work, careers, the challenges she faced going alone, and how she hopes the book can help those who want to follow a similar path. It's a really interesting discussion because we've both made similar decisions in terms of starting our own businesses, but obviously in very different sectors. So I hope you find them useful. We'll be back with a full episode next week. All right, Anna, welcome. Welcome to the channel. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. I'm very excited. So you've written this book. I have. Can you can you tell me like what what is the how if, if someone asks Anna, what's what's your book about? What do you like say to them? I say that it is a handbook for freelancers side hustlers and creative entrepreneurs oh okay and what does this handbook involve um it involves everything that you need to know to work for yourself um basically if you want to be self-employed in whatever capacity this has absolutely everything in it um my aim with the book was when i first went freelance I would hear people talk about how they did it, how to go about starting. And there was always a point where the story would let leave me to ask, okay, but how did you actually do that? Yeah. This book is supposed to answer all of those questions. I think if someone reads this book and still has a question to the effect of, but how did you actually do that? I consider it a failure. Um, so this is just basically supposed, it's designed to help you just run your own business basically your own business of one okay that's interesting so you're coming at this from like a journalism turned freelance writer perspective is that right i'm a journalist um slash writer mm. and 
I, although that's kind of like what I've done, this book is for anyone who wants to work for themselves. And I've used the fact that I'm a journalist and have those skills to fill in any of the gaps that I don't have about working for yourself in other capacities. So this book is really for anyone who wants to be a freelancer in whatever line of work that they're in. Because to me, the kind of secret to freelancing is treating it like a business and developing those business skills even though there's only one of you and your business is basically you hence you yeah. are a business <laughs> no absolutely so what would you say are like why why should people consider becoming freelancers or side hustlers or creative entrepreneurs i mean the biggest thing for me has always been flexibility and autonomy over my time and my schedule and making my job fit around my life rather than my life fit around my job and I personally have found that I've just had so many more opportunities and ability to do all sorts of creative ventures by working for myself rather than for somebody else people who kind of really value variety people who maybe don't have a really fixed idea of wanting to do just one thing Freelancing is just such a great opportunity because it allows you to create more of that patchwork job, call it a portfolio career, call it a multi-hyphenate, whatever you want to call it. But putting all of those things together, that's really where freelancing, that is freelancing really allows you to do that in a way that traditional jobs perhaps don't. Um, A question that I often get asked is, would you ever consider going back into full-time work and my answer back is always well if I sat here and try to dream up what my ideal job would be what my dream job would be it would be being able to write about whatever I want to um, without kind of certain restrictions on me be able to have the freedom to try other projects like a podcast a newsletter an event series whatever Um, not have to go into an office, Um, not have to do, not have to deal with all of the politics that comes with working for companies. And then I kind of think, well, hold on a minute, I'm quite literally doing all of that. So I've created the job that I want. I don't need to go and seek employment to fulfill that. How do you one thing I, I often think about around freelancing like being a side hustler and stuff is is around like identity like as a as a medic basically me me and all my friends all of our identity is very much tied to i'm a doctor but now that i've kind of taken a break from this a little bit and even as i'm now thinking do i really want to go back into medicine i get this kind of wall of well what's my internal and external identity going to be like what am i going to think about myself and what am i how am i going to explain what i do to other people like do you how 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 do you deal deal with that (laughs) that really resonates with me because i i have that as a journalist so i think there are certain professions where identity is such a big part of it i think journalists medics architects designers these are the types of career where you 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 can you can meet someone and they say what do you do and you just say I'm a journalist and that person immediately knows well they think they know yeah. <laughs> what you do and who you are 
And also, you know, I used to work for companies that have very well-known brand names. And so then you say, I'm a journalist for X place. Mm. And then again, that forms part of your identity. And it can be a real struggle to walk away from that because who am I without that label? Um, but then at the same time, I think it is really important for all of us to realize that we do have an identity outside of what we do. This is just a big problem that we have in our society where the first question after what's your name is, what do you do? And the expected answer is, what do you do for work? Not who are you as a person? Um, and so that's kind of part of this issue. But then also at the same time, freelancer also, or side hustler, these also have identities attached to them. Some people, when you say I'm a freelancer, their reaction will be, oh, okay, so you don't have a full-time job. Wow, what's that like? You know, I can't possibly conceive of what it would be like to work for myself. Other people have negative connotations about freelancing. I mean, I kind of grew up in a time and a place where self-employment was for people who couldn't get real jobs. So there can be negative connotations around it. It's, it does really no, I cannot give you an answer that's going to be like immediately going to fix your problems. Um, I wish I could, but it's something that I have actually found that in being self-employed, I've focused a lot more on how important it is to think about my identity outside of work. And it's actually made me try to peel back those layers and almost those sort of I think to a large extent I was using the company I used to work for and the fact that I'm a journalist as kind of a crutch for my own external, how I was sort of externally presenting mm. who I am. And now I do, tr I do try to think about who am I outside of work and I need to build an identity outside of what I do. Mm. Um, it's a re it's a really, really tough one. I mean, the biggest thing that I have learned since working for myself is I've tried to undo so many of these bad habits and bad mindsets that I cultivated as a result of working in-house. Um, but it's been a journey. I mean, I've, I'm now nearly four years into it and I still feel like there's a lot mm. that I'm learning. Um, but it's a really, really big part of that because, um, like I said, freelancing also has its own identity as well and to a large extent i am now a freelancer who talks a lot about freelancing and and i do struggle with that as for my own for me is my my own identity because there is a lot more to me and a lot more to my work than just being the freelancer who talks about freelancing so it's it's really hard um so i'm here with you basically nice. on that one <laughs> Um, what did your friends and family say think when you said that, hey, uh, I am, you know, I was a, an, an editor of The Guardian, a journalist of Vice, and now I'm going to be a freelancer? Like, well, what was that like? I think my mum panicked. Uh, I, I think she, I think she, you know, comes from the generation and mindset that um, working in-house is kind of the way to go um and and this is the thing i do want to make really clear like i have got nothing against working for large companies working for any kind of company being in i don't really like the term full-time employment because that implies that if you're freelance you're 
working part-time when you're not um but traditional employment let's call it traditional employment so i have got i've got nothing against traditional employment for so many people that is the right thing to do but there are lots of people like me who it's not it's not the right thing for us and my experience of going through the education system all the way from school all the way through to university and even a master's degree self-employment was just never an option that was presented and encouraged to be explored um and so i think there was there was a lot of panic around me i mean i don't have i have one other friend who happened to go freelance around about the time that i did but all of my kind of main group of friends no one works themselves i'm not from a family of kind of self-employed or entrepreneurs they all have jobs or had jobs so it really was kind of deviating from that path and it's just that classic thing where you know your parents know they 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 have an idea of what is best for you and it really comes from their best interest and so if you deviate from it of course there's going to be some element of worry uh but they're they're very on board with it now like super on board with it and they've realized that it's the thing that makes me happy and has worked out for me um but it's you know a part of this is also visibility like when you don't see people doing something that you maybe think you want to do you have no idea how to go after it and you fill in the blanks about everything that's going to go wrong hmm so how how did you realize that traditional employment was not for you it started with the commute and how much i hated it and no one likes commuting but i i started feeling like there was something wrong with me because I kind of went through this phase where I would actually feel really sick on the train and in going into work and I don't know what it was mild claustrophobia um who knows what what was really going on there but I just really struggled to actually get into the office and then when I was there I hated being there I could not get this idea out of my head that I just thought it was bonkers that we are assigned desks next to people who we have no choice over who we get to sit next to and we are spending more time with this person or people around us than we are with our partners with our friends with our family and we don't really get that much say over when and how we're doing our work um I remember asking if I could work from home one day a week because as a writer, open offices are the worst possible thing for your productivity and to be able to do your job. Um, And my request was denied because I was told that there were other people on my team who couldn't be trusted to work from home. They would kind of abuse that privilege. And so therefore, if the rule couldn't apply to everyone, then no one should get it. And that didn't make sense to me, but that's a whole other story and so that's kind of where it started I also kind of struggled to I struggled to sit at my desk for eight hours a day and I would sort of be taking my laptop around and trying to sort of sit on sort of in corners and on sofas and and it was that's kind of where it started but I really internalized that as a my something wrong with me and there was a problem with that there was a problem with me because I had this idea that work equals office that When I was a kid, my parents went to work. They went to the office. Work was a thing that happened in a place somewhere over there and that the office and the work and work were basically synonymous. It took a long time for me to understand that those that wasn't true. Um, 
And so that's kind of how it started. And then also, as I just learned more about how I work and who I am, I realised I'm actually, I'm someone who has no problem self-motivating. I'm someone who can exercise without uh, a class or an instructor, because if I tell myself I want to exercise, I will just do it on my own. Um, I'm someone who I can have a self-imposed deadline. So these things just started to creep into my mind. And then the kind of question of maybe freelancing might be better suited for me. It, it just it was a very gradual process. And it was one that I kind of, I suppose, almost rallied against because it seemed really scary. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't really know anyone doing it. And I had been taught that my path should look one way and this was me questioning that and that was just all quite scary and very daunting um and a really slow kind of like creeping into the back of my mind that this isn't what I want to be doing but the thing that I think I want seems really really scary and I just don't know if I'm capable of doing it um and then the rug got pulled out from underneath me I got made redundant and I thought can't get any worse let's try nice yeah, a, a, a lot of that really resonates. Like this thing of work equals office. Like, um, I guess as a medic, it's like work equals going to the hospital. And anything outside of that, even now that I know so many people who work in, you know, work from home or work as software engineers or work as entrepreneurs or creators or anything like that, there's still a part of me that can't shake the feeling of I'm not really doing work unless I'm sitting in a hospital. And doing something like this really doesn't feel like work. Making a YouTube video doesn't feel like work. Tinkering on my website doesn't feel like work because in my mind and in my heart, this thing of work equals hospital. Um, I guess it was similar similar for you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, even now, I I have these moments where it, it's a real back and forth. It's, it is a bit of a tension where I'm kind of feeling, isn't it amazing that I get to do all of these creative things that really don't feel like work and I get to call them work. For example, what we're doing right now. I get to meet really, I get to meet really creative, cool people and talk on a YouTube channel and I get to call that work. I, I make a podcast with my best friend. I get to call that work. So I think how amazing that is. But then I also feel like, I guess... I doubt myself as well because I kind of think, am I not really working hard enough? Am I not meeting external markers of, of success and what work should look like? Should I just actually be in a job? Again, it kind of comes back to those ideas of have I somehow failed because I haven't been able to make it work in the way that it should look like. And then I kind of, then my thought process is, well, whenever you sort of enter the word should into something, there's a lot of shame attached to that and try to banish that from your vocabulary. So it, it's, it's, it's a lot, it is a tension and, and it's just, it's something that you just, if you know the path, you try to, you need to try to stay on it and kind of shut out all of the other stuff in the other lanes, but it is really, really difficult. How do you, so, so one, one definition of work is work equals office. Another definition of work is work equals that thing that I do to make money. How do you think about work now that you're a freelancer in terms of I am doing this for the sake of making money? I think work equals lots of different things. Yeah. And I don't think it has a fixed 
definition at any one point because as a freelancer there's still plenty of work there's a lot of work that I have to do to make money there's work that I do because I enjoy it there's some work that I do that actually doesn't make any money but is part of my job Mm. in many ways um for me also I had an idea that work equals boring oh um so I kind of grew up thinking you know you look at you I was watching the office peep show and the Simpsons and portrayals of work in pop culture kind of in the late 90s was all about how boring work was and how you know we're just all clock watching until we can run away and get back home and then then live our lives same kind of idea with um with retirement that you work really hard and then you get to retire and then your life begins when in reality i think a lot of people work really hard they get to retirement and then they're bored because we're not supposed to kind of live like that essentially so those are just all sorts of things that were kind of swirling around in my head and now i think work means lots of different things at different stages and those stages can happen in kind of like years but also in like days you know there is i look at my work week and there is stuff that i have to do because i do have to pay my mortgage and i do have to make money because that's the world that we live in we all need money to live and to survive but then i also get to do things that i find fulfilling and that are part of my working life and my working world Mm. uh, and that's okay too um but again it's it's hard to shift between those modes and it's hard to challenge ideas about work both when they go against the grain of what the majority of people think but also when it goes against what you were taught or what you saw around you as you kind of grew up and when you first entered the workforce. Mm. Do you ever think like you know 20 years from now, am I still going to be a freelance writer doing a podcast, doing a this, doing a that? Does that thought process go through your mind? It does. I think, though, for me, I do truly believe, because, again, bringing this all back to the fact that my core profession is a journalist, and I truly believe, maybe I have to believe this, that journalism as a profession, as a skill, as a function of our society and democracy. I don't believe it's going anywhere. I think it will morph into so many different forms and it's changed drastically. You know, the media landscape has changed drastically even in the, you know, coming up to the 15 years that I've been in the workforce. But journalism and its core skills, I don't think are going anywhere. So I feel quite confident in signing myself up to a life of being a journalist. What that's going to look like in practice, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'll still be making a podcast in my 50s. Who knows? Maybe we'll have something else. Maybe I'll be on the next kind of... I'll, I'll, I'll move into whatever the next iteration is. Um, I think I've always been someone who enjoys variety, enjoys innovation, and has been quite embracing of all of this... Has been quite embracing of all of the... Uh, has been quite embracing of the disruptions to the media industry. Um, I don't know. Would I? St- am I st- going to work for myself for the rest of my life? Honestly, I don't know. If you made me answer right now, probably because yeah. I just 
I really enjoy it and I feel like I can continue to make it my own. But then at the same time, if if there's major disruption to how work, traditional employment is set up and the types of contracts that people can get and the types of jobs that people can get who knows maybe there is a job that's going to be a lot more attractive and a lot more secure than what I'm doing right now so I just I don't know um but I'm I'm quite comfortable not knowing that I long ago let go of the idea that of trying to get a job for life and I don't really believe that a job particularly in the media is more secure than working for yourself. Mm. I honestly do believe that I am more secure being a freelance journalist than being one who is employed by a company. Mm. Yeah, this is this is sort of the thing that I'm struggling with at the moment in that when I think about what my life will look like 10, 20 years from now, I find it very hard to imagine be like, am I still going to be making YouTube videos in my 50s? Like, that seems a bit weird. Um, and when I think of what I'm doing now, for some reason, I just automatically think of that I'll be doing exactly the same thing 20 years from now. When in reality, it's like, well, no, <laughs> I'm going to always be a doctor of some description and I'm always going to always going to be a creator of some description. And I don't know what the details of that are going to look like. And actually, for me being... I need to learn to be more comfortable with that reality rather than thinking I need a sort of 10, 20 year plan. Um, I think that's because that's how we're taught though because we were taught we were told at 16 basically to sign up for a career for the rest of our lives at least that's yeah. what I was taught and I'm pretty sure <laughs> you, you pick were taught your, the same you pick thing. your A-levels if you're picking science yeah. and maths you're going to be a doctor that kind of thing exactly that's absolutely bonkers I mean I was a completely first of all you're still a child um, and second of all I was a completely different person over 15 years ago now so it's I think that's where this comes from that we have been taught we need these big plans and that plans are set in stone and they are rigid and once we make the plan we must stick to the plan never deviate from the path failure is bad you've signed up for this it cannot be reversed that's a really damaging idea to instill on young people uh, and it's something that I think a lot of us still carry with us. Um, I don't know. I think I'm also a person who, I don't know why, but I have always struggled to kind of project myself majorly into the future. I'm not sure why. So I think part of me just, it, I don't worry a whole lot about that. But then at the same time, I do also kind of think, even short term, like I do kind of worry, even though I've been doing this for long enough now to know that it works, I still worry and I still think, oh, my God, what if I wake up tomorrow and this whole freelancing thing is just it's just gone? Yeah. Um, and then what am I going to do? Um, first of all, it's unlikely to happen. And second of all, well, bad stuff already happened and I figured it out. I lost a job and I worked stuff out. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about how much freelancing teaches you in terms of agility and being really fast on your feet I think that is something that especially now um is something I really really value and remind myself that it's really really important to be able to be a kind of like career sort of like cat I suppose yeah. <laughs> moving around as, as needed yeah this is a an, an argument I often have with my mum in that like she often often says to me that see 
you make plans to do something and then you quit and this is bad be like first you said you wanted to be a plastic surgeon and then you quit that and then you decided you want to be an obstetrician and then you quit that and now you, and now you decided you want to be an anesthetist and now you decided emergency medicine and then you were you were saying you wanted to go to america and you know move move to america as a doctor and you quit that and i'm like well yes that's exactly the point like the point of these plans isn't that they're supposed to be set in stone it's like right now i think this is what i want to do and i'll try it out for a bit and see if it's still what i want to do I guess her her counter to that is usually, well, the only reason you're quitting these plans is because you're afraid of putting in work. I'm like, well, no, I'm not afraid of putting in work, but I don't want to put in work that feels meaningless or unfulfilling. And I think maybe the old school way of work is, you know, put your head down, work equals suffering, work equals boring. Everyone's got to earn their living. And uh, now this, in a way, expectation or hope that, kind of our generation has that we want work to be more than just suffering that goes very counter to kind of the old school versions of work there is so much in that i feel that and it's really it gets to the heart of a lot of things that i stress about and think about at the moment because so on the one hand the big problem there is this word quitting and this idea that I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see how it goes and where it takes me. And then I'm going to course correct. That's what's going on there. It's not, I've said I'm going to do this. Therefore, if I change my plan at all, that is failure. Because that's the thing is quitting is this word that is tied up with failure. And these are bad things and they should be avoided. And then also part of this is this idea that what does hard work even mean? And what does it mean to put in effort yeah. and work hard at something because it's not, it's definitely not a walk in the park to work for yourself at all. If someone reads this book and thinks, my God, working for yourself sounds like it is not for me. I consider that also to be a win because freelancing and working for a company are two very different ways of building a job, having a career and well, essentially working. So there is still hard work that goes into all of this, that goes into all of this stuff basically. Um, and so it's kind of this idea that, oh, if you're doing something that is in any way creative or is something that's more self-driven or you're a self-starter, that you're not working hard when actually, yes, you, you really, really are. So there's so many kind of things, I think, that are swirling around in these tensions. And it, it does kind of, I'm, I'm really not here for the sort of like, let's pit the boomers against the millennials. <laughs> um, but it, it, there, there is kind of something there in the tensions between how different people see what a career path should look like. Um, and... And it doesn't. It just. It doesn't. Ha it doesn't have to be one way. It doesn't. It, there is no right way. Basically, it's. It's for each person to figure out their own path. And again, it comes back to this problem that we're not taught to think about what. What role do I want to see work play in my life? What do I want my life to look like, rather than what do I want for my career? Uh, and kind of, you know, if I decide to work in this way, well, that's going to mean that my life is going to look like this. And also, again, it's kind of challenging, you know, well, why why do doctors have to work full-time? Like, why can't we have part-time doctors? Or, you know, why can't I be someone who is a 
part-time writer and part-time yoga instructor or whatever it might be there is there there is not kind of like one size fits all um but yeah i i, I definitely get it i think there is a lot of tension between how some people see work and what a career should look like and then people who want to yeah. forge a different path yeah it's like sometimes i think of work uh, almost in the context or rather i think i think of life almost in the context of as if it's as if it's a game as if it's like either a board game or a video game and in i don't, I don't know how familiar you are with this sort of like modern day board games uh, but often there's you've got to figure out an economic engine you've got to yeah. figure out a way of making money either it's by selling sheep or by wood or or, or steel or whatever so and it, exactly well, quite yeah <laughs> so, so every, every, everyone needs that economic engine um and the way i like to think of well life is that okay that's like a really important box to tick and you want to try and tick that fairly early on because without an economic engine you're completely screwed whether it's you know, if your parents are really rich, that's an economic engine. You're sorted. You can do what you want. But if they're not, then you have to figure out a way of making money. And then once you've satisfied that basic thing, which usually takes work, at that point, you can start thinking, okay, I've ticked that box. Now let me think about like all of the other things that I want my working life and I want my life to look like. But I think without ticking the economic engine box, then that's signing up for mis- misery throughout life because that's the sort of society that we live in. I think that is how it is set up, but to me it feels backwards. To me it kind of feels like, why does the work question have to be answered first? Why can't the life question be answered first? Because, you know, there are things that... There are so many things that affect the types of jobs we can do. You know, for women, like, am I going to want to have a family? When am I going to want to do that? How's my career going to impact it? Do I work in a field that is really inflexible and makes it even harder than it already is for women to have kids and also have a career? Um, Do I want, you know, where do I want to live? Um, I don't want to live in a city, but the industry that I really want to work in seems to all be based in London. There are all of these questions that feel like they have to be answered after we've figured out the work thing. We, We are taught to shove our lives into the margins of our careers basically and that feels really backwards um and part i mean you know part of that problem is because in order to live we have to make money like Mm -hmm. our world turns on money um and that is also a big part of the issue because we can't live if we don't make make money um it feels like a massive problem to try and tackle that system yeah. <laughs> and that's not something that one individual can do you can't kind of break out of that unfortunately this there is this big problem um that if you struggle with the system that you live in you have to somehow find a way to exist within it whilst also being true to your own values and that is really really hard those are kind of like two levers that feel like they need to be pulled and it's just it can be a real challenge um so I think the answer really is to find that, to kind of go back to your board game um, analogy, is to find that economic engine to fuel your career and then your life that that you that does feel meaningful to you, mm-hmm. and just to challenge ideas of what success should look like and what your life should look like, and think about what makes sense for you 
as an individual at this particular moment that you're trying to figure this out and know that it also will change and that's okay and that's mm. part of life yeah nice that's a inspiring inspiring way of looking at it so l- let's say someone someone picks up the book or is 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 considering picking up the book and is thinking okay i am currently in a full-time job or i'm a full-time student where i'm hoping to land a full-time job once i've worked my way through internships etc etc but i like the idea of this freelancer thing i like the idea of working for myself i like the idea of not having a commute not having a boss what would you say would be like the step-by-step guide to how to go from full-time something to traditional employment towards more freelance career so i think the first step is to actually really understand what freelancing is going to look like for you so I did think about going freelance and I had this idea because I didn't really know it, know differently that being freelance would mean that me, Anna, the journalist, would get to do all of the fun parts of my job, the writing and the actual journalism, but I wouldn't have a boss, I wouldn't have to deal I wouldn't have an office, I wouldn't have to deal with the office politics, I wouldn't have a commute. That I would just do the journalism and that would just that would be freelancing. What I failed to understand is I would basically be the entire organization compressed into one. I would be my, I wouldn't have a boss because I would be my own boss, but I would also be the employee at the same time and the head of finance and the head of marketing and all of the other stuff that goes into running a business. Um, All of that stuff can very much be learned. That is literally what my book is. It is a download of everything you need to know to be able to run the business side of your freelancing. But you do need a willingness, a curiosity, some interest in doing all of that. Um, I do hear from freelancers who say they they absolutely hate um, talking about money or selling themselves um, or self-promotion or whatever it is. That's going to make it really hard to be a freelancer because you're never going to get away from having to do that. There are ways you can do it that make sense for you, but they are there and it's just a part of being self-employed, basically. So the first thing is to just fully understand what you're signing yourself up for and that it will probably be great and will work out for you. But you're essentially trading one set of problems that you have in full-time employment or traditional employment for a new and different set of problems. And it's just about which ones are you comfortable with dealing with and what matters to you. Um, So that's kind of the first thing. And then from there, um, the kind of advice that people often hear and is really important is save up and have a cushion. Um, I kind of didn't do that. I mean, I had some savings, but I didn't have... I was planning to build my free... I'm going freelance pot, um, but I didn't have time to do that because I kind of started freelancing essentially by accident. Um, And in a way, that kind of gave me a kick up the bum to sort of make sure this works. I felt like I had to make it work faster than maybe I would have done if I had that cushion to fall back on. Um, But nonetheless, it is really, really important to have like some money aside because not least, it depends what kind of freelancer you are. Even if if the work starts rolling in pretty quickly, there might be a gap between when you actually get paid. 
Um, so that's something that's really important. And then the other big thing is network and building a network. So whilst you still are in employment, you're not going to quit your job and burn all of those bridges and kind of like say peace out to your boss and like in a blaze of fire and sort of never look back over your shoulder. Most likely your first freelance gigs will come from people that you already know. Most likely they are your former employers or people that you have worked with or have some kind of professional relationship with. Um, so it's really, really important to cultivate networks when you work for yourself. Um, another kind of a great stepping stone into freelancing is go down to part-time. Can you take the job you're already doing and can you reduce your hours and go down to part-time and then develop your freelance clients in the rest of the time that you have? Or can you find another job that is part-time that allows you to kind of build out your freelancing um, because again, like kind of everything that we've been talking about, there is no one size fits all. There are freelancers who work hundred percent freelance. They have loads of different clients and, um, every month looks completely different. There are other freelancers who have a part-time gig or one very stable client, um, who kind of provides that backbone of their work and that sort of financial security. Um, so I think those are kind of the main things, um, and once you get that first freelance gig, it just it just goes from there. That just gives you the confidence and it just gives you the assurance that, oh, yeah, no, this is going to work. And then it just just rolls. Nice. Just making sure my thing is still recording. This is going to be fun. That's what my um, journalism professor said to me on really? day, day one of J school. Oh, yeah. Nice. And that like was such a like pivotal moment because I was like, oh, cool. Work can be fun. Yeah. <laughs> this is like literally what my whole book is about. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you should, I mean, this guy, his, he is amazing. Yeah. His name is Michael Shapiro. He's like an old school journalist yeah. who now teaches at Columbia. Yeah. Um, he's just amazing. Oh. Legend. Sick. Uh, I will try and talk to him. <laughs> um. So are there any industries that are more or less suitable for freelance work than others in your research experience? The creative industries are probably the most dominated by freelancers. So, I mean, journalism, my own industry, but also theatre, art, design, all of these industries, they heavily rely on freelancers. Actually, this is the other thing that trips up a lot of people who want to go into the creative industries is they don't realise that actually they probably will be more successful if they were freelance because that's just where the bulk of the jobs are. Um, increasingly, though, you know, you can pretty much now freelance in almost all industries or anything that you can do that can be done remotely anything that you can do online it you can pretty much freelance in um increasingly though there are professions that you sort of never thought you would be able to freelance in that increasingly you can like you know like law for example there's you can you can be a freelance lawyer um or you can you can also this the other thing to think about is you can take skills that you have that might seem like they are only suited for a profession and you can turn them into a freelance job so I know a freelancer who had a very successful career in corporate banking and came from that very corporate finance world and 
she thought these are just very niche skills that will only work in this structure. Um, and she's taken all of that and she's completely repackaged them. And now she works for herself and she runs a platform where she teaches other women how to invest and how to be financially savvy and financially literate. And that is all from knowledge that she had in the corporate finance world. Um, so there's also that way to think about things is if you do come from a job and you have what you think are a set of skills that will only exist in a job format, actually they can be repackaged. So that is another another thing that I don't think enough people realise and appreciate and think about. Um, but by and large, there are certain industries where it is expected that freelancers exist. So journalism being a prime example. I, um, I never really had that much of a problem getting work because it's a really normal thing just to email editors and say, hey, I have this idea that I want to write. Can I do it? Uh, so it is really important to kind of know what you're getting yourself into. Are you trying to go into an industry where there are other freelancers and this is a pretty dumb thing? Or are you going into an industry where... Um, you will still be able to freelance, but you may have to kind of be thinking a bit differently about it or thinking creatively. Um, and it's just really important to sort of essentially do your market research and know, know what you're going into. Yeah. And no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Even, even in fields like I was trying to think even, even like consulting, I know lots of people who've become freelance consultants after working at like McKinsey or Bain or one of these big companies. And now they are, Yeah sort of consultants for hire and obviously they're you know when when mckinsey charges a day rate of ten thousand pounds for a, a senior manager or something <laughs> you can charge less than that and still make a lot of money from very few clients as a freelance consultant um equally with things like accounting finance so many accountants have set up their own shop as freelance accountants rather than working for a big accountancy firm so even in those more traditional seeming things but even even in medicine like i have so many friends who are we don't call it that, but like freelance doctors effectively, where it's like they'll work maybe, you know, four days a week for a month or two, and that will make enough money to be able to go skiing for the next three months and maybe work as a part-time emergency medic at the ski resort and then go back to the GP practice. All these portfolio careers being formed around, I've got this set of skills. Um, I'm going to focus on building up my kind of professional reputation as an individual, and then I'll be able to get these jobs here and there. I think the secret to doing that or the thing that's really important to understand about it is realizing and appreciating what do you what is the additional value that you bring as someone who is working independently or as a freelancer or self-employed whatever you want to call them because your consulting example is a great one there are lots of companies who need and want consultants who have a real business need for them but can't afford or don't want to bring in the McKinsey's of this world or the large the large agencies or whatever and they want someone who can bring in that expertise on a budget that actually works for them but then also for the freelancer actually that budget is really really lucrative you know on the other side of the equation and what is it that you bring that is valuable because you work for yourself what can you do that a large agency can't you know where is do you have more agility do you have all of these contacts do you have all of this insider knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get 
if you worked with an agency or whatever it might be. So I think that's the that's the thing is, again, it kind of comes back to understanding what your what your business is, basically, mm-hmm. and what is your kind of unique selling point or, you know, what's your sort of essentially what's your product and service and what makes it valuable and part of that is the fact that you are independent and that you are and you know you are one yeah yeah that's 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 very interesting so um often if i'm talking on like youtube or podcasts and stuff about the idea of like making money or entrepreneurship i always say that like money is just an exchange of value you have to be able to provide value if you want money and i think when a lot of people I speak to, when when they're thinking about entrepreneurship, they're thinking about it in almost in a sense that this is going to fall into my lap, that I deserve this money or I have an expectation that someone will pay me for this work. But in reality, like when you're when you're an employee in traditional employment, the value you're providing is the ability to follow instructions and do them well. Whereas when you're an independent, when you're freelance, when you're an entrepreneur, the value you provide is in sort of more than just the ability to follow instructions. Um, I think it's really interesting how, yeah, if you want to succeed in the freelance world, you are, you've got to lead with value rather than have this expectation that, oh, it should just work out. Value is something that it takes a long time to get your head around what that actually means, especially when you work for yourself, because it's really hard to untangle your business value from your self-worth and almost I guess from your identity as well to a large extent and it's something that um, again these are not things that are taught to us and it's really really important to learn what is your actual value and also to even take that back take that a step further back and understand what does value actually really mean in this freelance context Um, and A really kind of good way to illustrate it or something that I often I sort of lean on to explain this is it's quite a sort of well-known anecdote, but I think still kind of bears retelling. Um, You have a company that is a sort of like multinational company and um, I don't know, it makes whatever it manufactures a product. It's core machine that makes this thing breaks down. Um, And for every day that this machine is not working, it's costing the company hundred thousand pounds um they can't fix it so the company calls in a specialist especially the specialist flies in from somewhere abroad and she tinkers with the machine for 10 minutes and then she bashes it with a hammer and it springs back to life um and everything is all well and good and the machine works and then the company can get back to kind of regular scheduled programming um and then she sends the bill and it's for ten thousand pounds the company come back to her and they say, well, hold on a minute, you were just there for 20 minutes and how, you know, even with the travel time and everything, how on earth could this be worth £10,000? And she says, I was there for 20 minutes, but it's the 20 years of experience and all of my knowledge that taught me to know where to bash the machine (laughs) to fix it. Um that is my value, that is my price. Uh, And that, I think, just really illustrates that it's not about time, it's about what do you bring that can fix a problem, add value to a company. You know, that's the other thing about this, is that 
that company was losing money every moment that that machine wasn't working. It's very valuable to them for her to fix this quickly in 20 minutes rather than, I don't know, dragging it out for however many weeks. Um, that's kind of another, that's a crucial part of this, that it's not just an exchange of time, that your value is so much more than that. It's your creativity, it's your expertise, it's your knowledge. Um, it's the stuff that is kind of that you uniquely bring to solving this problem. Uh, and it's, it takes a long time to get your head around that. And, and a big challenge again for freelancers is, um, especially creative freelancers, when you're kind of selling things that are not so tangible, maybe they are articles or podcasts or whatever, it can be really hard to sort of untangle, well, where does the work end and I begin? And is this a comment on who I am? And is this kind of about me and my worth? Um, all of that stuff gets tangled up with it. Um, but such a big thing that really benefits anyone who works for themselves is really understanding and doing the work to learn what value is, what is my value, and then just creating that emotional distance between you and the thing that you are selling. Um, again, even when you are just that one person and you're doing everything, you're doing the selling, you're doing the doing, you're running the whole thing you've got to create that distance um, because that just makes all of these like money conversations so much easier and it really really helps you well a it helps you to make the money and then b also just helps you to kind of feel better and be able to have these conversations yeah yeah it's a, it, exactly the same in like the youtubing world where when you first get a sponsorship you're like oh my god how on earth can this company be offering to pay me 500 dollars for just like a 10 second mention in a video like what the hell something must be broken in the world yeah. And then if you look behind the scenes, you realize, oh, actually, you know, if this video is being seen by X number of people, this company would have paid $5,000 to have this ad on, on, on TV or on a billboard or something. So I'm actually very good value for money for them. But because I'm an individual, it just feels like a stupid amount of money to be paying for a one, you know, 60 second mention. Um, but that goes, that, that speaks to the, I think often a lot of us, we, the way we price something, again, I, I, I wonder if this is like a sort of boomer versus millennial way of thinking about it, but like uh, cost-based pricing versus value-based pricing. Like, you know, I was telling my mom the other day that I paid 70 pounds for two like technician people to come and install this whiteboard. How and she was like, how on earth can you pay 70 pounds for them? They probably just took them 20 minutes. And I was like, yeah, but they came like the next day. There were two of them. They saw today. I didn't have to think about it. Like, obviously it's worth the 70 quid. Um, and I think a lot of us have that internalized within ourselves where we feel bad for charging for something when we know this thing is only taking me an hour of my time how can i possibly be charging a thousand dollars for that kind of thing but not not appreciating that that is easily worth it for the people that were that are, that are paying us again so much to unpack here i wish yeah. your mom was here so that we could have some chats because um it's, it's really interesting though it's really interesting and yeah. i think it gets to a lot of people's kind of concerns and thoughts about these things so, first of all, there is this idea that um, why would you pay for something that you could do yourself? Mm. Um, and that extends to all kinds of things. You know, why would you pay for someone else to clean your car? Why would you pay for someone to clean your house? Mm. All of these things. That assumes that everybody's time is worth the same amount of money. And the reality is that it's not. Um, if you are someone who has a... Um, 
essentially a high day rate or that what you do has a certain value and the time that it would take you to do something or or the hour out of your day it is maybe worth more than 70 pounds that you would spend to hire someone else to do it so there's that thing there's also this idea i hear from a lot of freelancers that they don't want to outsource they don't want to delegate because um the work is so boring or um it's too complicated to explain to someone else there is something in that which is um assuming that everyone sees their work in the same way that they do what i find boring someone else might find actually really interesting or just to put it really bluntly they don't really care but they just want or need the money um and there is something kind of to be said about if you're in a position where you're earning enough money and you are able to pay other people to um to do to to delegate to or to do projects for you that is creating work you know of course pay them properly and you know value their time and their work but you are you're creating jobs essentially and that is a good thing um and um there is also this 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 is the other key part of value is that um there is context always to it um another great story that or another way to illustrate this um that i just i loved this i love this example you have a man who has um, a really important um business dinner and he has his one pair of appropriate trousers that he can wear these are his lucky trousers they're his only kind of like smart casual trousers that are appropriate to go to this restaurant um and because he was poorly organized or for whatever reason um they're dirty and so it's kind of up to the wire and the dinner is in a couple of hours and he is he's washing his trousers in this is an american example so it's it's in like a communal laundry yeah. <laughs> laundry situation He's standing there washing his trousers and he realizes that he doesn't have enough quarters to um, put them in the, to, to get the dryer, to put them in the dry cycle. Um, that he's only got a $5 bill, but not enough quarters. And he's standing there with soaking wet trousers in his pants, in the laundry room, utterly stressed with no options because these are the only trousers that he, he can, he, that he has and he, they, they have to be dried today, right now. Another guy walks in um, and he he the first guy says can i buy 75 cents from you for five dollars can i exchange this five dollar note for 75 cents essentially can i pay more than the actual value of this money um and he says yeah of course like it's free you know why not (laughs) um and so he so he takes the quarters and he dries his trousers and everything all works out for him what that story illustrates is that value also has a particular context. In that moment right there, that guy needed those trousers. If you walked into that laundry mat another time and you were like, oh, can I, can I like sell you <laughs> three quarters for $5 or whatever? No, of course not. Um, so it's all about the context. For you, at that moment, someone else putting that whiteboard up was worth the money. But maybe your mum has the time on her hands 
and the skills as well, potentially, to put the whiteboard up. And so it's also all about context. And again, that kind of goes into any business transaction. You know, when you're talking to a potential client and they need something urgently, that means you can charge them more money because, you know, as we all know from when you get express delivery, there is always a premium for needing yeah. things needing things urgently. So there is there is that content element to it as well. Um, and again, it all comes back to understanding what does value actually mean. And it's it's it really is a really powerful piece of knowledge that can really transform how you run any kind of business or um, or kind of, I suppose, even outside of the, uh, outside of your working world as well. Yeah, I think this value thing is something that that often when I when I speak to my friends who are working in traditional jobs, um, it kind of depresses them when they're like, I realize that. McKinsey is charging the client like 100x what they're paying me and I realize the client is happy about this and thinks this is a good deal so why am I being paid one percent of the the value that I'm actually providing and it's a an interesting realization when it happens that hang on this is how the world works this is the reason these big corporations exist Um, and for all these other various various factors they can charge so much more than the the value that you as the individual are getting. Well, that's also part of that is for the employees, the value for them is the reliability of the paycheck. It's knowing that I'm going to get paid X amount every month and, you know, maybe I get my bonus or whatever. And McKinsey, in theory, should be looking after me and providing all of these other things because... McKinsey is only as good as that as its consultants and the yeah. people that it hires. And then we kind of get into, you know, how companies should be treating their workers. And that's also a big part of it. And for some people, it's I'm willing to, you know, I'm comfortable knowing that I'm not being paid my exact worth because I get to have the stability mm-hmm. of this paycheck for other people they're willing to take the risk and everything that comes with being an independent consultant because they feel that that equation doesn't work for them. Um, So again, it's just, it's about the individual. Um, But it can be when you have that realization and you are the person who it doesn't compute for, it's really, really tough. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's uh, the, the, the other interesting thing is often on, um, on Twitter, uh, at least amongst, um, medic twitter there's there there is every every month there is some tweet that goes viral that oh my god did you know that a doctor only gets paid x amount per hour but a footballer gets paid a million x per hour (laughs) like oh my god what is the world what's going on with the world um and it often kind of leads to people commenting oh yeah doctors are so hard done by etc etc but obviously you know there there is a lot of unpacking there around you know, public versus private sector, like where is the value coming from? How much money is there in the thing? How much money is this individual's actions making? And a lot of stuff un, un, untangled there. It's a, that is a, such a big one because it's, this also gets to the problem of um, how do you value unpaid work as well? And how, you know, our GDP doesn't take into account people who care for the sick or for kids or all of this stuff and you know all of the unpaid work that women provide or working mothers provide um and that doesn't that is not taken into account when we're talking about kind of like our 
out, output as a yeah. nation. Um, so that's kind of that is one big part of this where the, these ideas kind of come from, I think, um, and why these things can feel while the, while these why these discrepancies in wages can feel so jarring. Um, and there's also kind of a problem with again, it goes back to how well should should everything be valued in the same way and you only really appreciate the value of a doctor when you really really need one but as a football fan you really you know you you're valuing yeah. that football player at every match and all the time and it almost feels like a kind of a constant in your life um it's also part of it's also because the way our medical system is set up is that all doctors in theory are made equal and they, as they should be and that you know I should be able to get the same care no matter what doctor I see and yeah. it's let there's less there's there's no like there's less celebrity in the way that there is with football players um but then at the same time again you know with the, with sport there's a whole other problem where it's only the 0.001% who can make it as elite athletes there is no kind of like middle manager equivalent of a football player if you want to pursue a career in sport you have to be blessed with the genetics and the good luck and a large extent kind of um you know you're just your circumstances and where you are in life to make it there are lots of people who are very skilled sports people who the stars just didn't align yeah. and there is not really there isn't really a career for them so there's there's a lot there's a lot in that <laughs> i was uh i was interviewing this guy a few a few weeks ago he's a he's a professional artist like painter uh kind of guy and now does is like an entrepreneur does courses teaching people how to how to draw and he said something very interesting because we, we were talking about like how hard is it to become like a professional artist or like a concept artist for video games and stuff and he was like you know th the thing you've got to keep in mind is that the more fun a job seems or the more fun a job is, the more competitive it's going to be to make money from it. Uh, and for a lot of people, the thought of being paid to do art for video games feels really, really, really fun. Therefore, loads of people, it's going to be very competitive. Um, equally, for a lot of people, becoming a professional footballer is like, oh my God, the absolute dream. Or becoming a YouTuber for a lot of people these days, the absolute dream. Therefore, it's going to have its own level of competition, which is different to the level of competition to be an accountant or something like that. Like accountants get paid very well. It's a good job, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the same level of competition as becoming a professional artist or a professional footballer. Um, and I think often with the freelance thing as well, I wonder if like part of the reason why it's kind of competitive in that harder to make money doing freelance than doing a traditional job well, it's just because, well, freelance theoretically is more fun. You have more more flexibility and you do therefore have to give up something. Like there's no such thing as a freelance. I think that's definitely the perception. I think there is this idea that, I mean, I had this for myself, that mm. I, I, I made this list of things that I had hoped I would achieve from being freelance way before I actually went freelance. And I remember writing that list and thinking this cannot possibly be true. I cannot have all of these things like that. There has got to be a catch. Like there is no way that this can work out. Um, but it did. And part of that is because we just, again, I think it, part of this comes back to sort of, we don't think that work 
should be fun and so therefore if it is there's got to be some kind of catch yeah. or there's something <laughs> going on there but then something that I read about recently that really changed my life or sort of really kind of had a massive impact on how I think about these things is there is this concept of a fear of success mm. and that um, lots of us obviously know about fear of failure and lots of us are worried about trying something and not being good at it but then there are also people who essentially are telling themselves narratives about I can't possibly achieve this thing that I really want because either it won't work out how I imagine it to be. It can't possibly be true. It, there is no way that this thing exists. There's got to be a catch. Um, people will think different uh, differently of me if I achieve this thing or I become rich or I become successful or whatever. My life will change for the worse. Um, or, you know, I will be a different person um, because this idea I have of what it means to go after this thing or, you know, to become a professional artist or YouTuber or whatever. Well, all YouTubers are horrible people. And so if I become one, I'm going to be a horrible person. There are are all of these um, myths or lies or narratives or whatever you want to call them that we construct because actually the thing that we want we're just so scared of it actually working out Mm. and that's a really difficult thing to get your head around because it feels like you're sabotaging yourself in a whole different way um but that's a really big part of it um that i learned from a book called the big leap by um gay hendrix highly recommend it um to, to to anybody basically who regardless of whether you're freelance or um in employment but it just really challenges these ideas of essentially kind of gets this thing that a lot of people I think have who people who are for all intents and purposes ambitious and actually quite successful but still don't feel like they've got there Um, and for them more often than not it's the fear of success that's holding them back rather than a fear of failure oh that's so interesting yeah, I think I, I I always have that with like the YouTube channel that, oh my God, this is going so well. It just can't possibly be real. It's going to crumble at any moment. Therefore, I need to do all these different things to try and be more risk averse about it and all, all this stuff. Um, we, we've we got this uh, course that I run called the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, um, which is like a six-week course helping people become better part-time YouTubers. And like last time we, we ran the cohort, we sold out within like four hours, which was really cool. But it's like, you know, the the two months leading up to that launch, I was like, you know, I was, I was shitting myself. I was like, oh, my God, no one's going to sign up. What if we only get like five people? We're going to lose money on this thing. And like a friend of mine asked the other day that, hey, you know, that went pretty well. Why don't you just run more cohorts each year? Because I was thinking, you know what, we'll, we'll do two or three cohorts a year. He was like, if each cohort is making you this much money, why not do 10 per year? And I was like, no, we can't possibly do 10. He was like, well, why not? I was like, oh, um, because uh, I don't know, no, one, no one's going to sign up. He was like, yeah, but you sold out in like three hours. I was like, oh shit, yeah, you're right. Why, why don't we do 10? And, and I think I was very much being held back by this feels too good to be true. There must be a catch. Therefore, I don't want to mess with the mojo by trying to overstep and potentially like 10x our revenue by doing 10 of these. You know what? Let's let's keep it modest. Let's only do two of them. Yeah, I mean that, and I think that happens, that happens to basically every freelancer I've been doing this nearly four years and I've I've never had a month where 
I made no money and I wasn't able to pay my bills. Yeah. And yet I start every month thinking, yeah. this is the month it's all going to come <laughs> crashing down. This is the month where I'm going to lose all my clients, never be able to get another project again, and, you know, have the house repossessed. This is, this is it. This is the month. This is the month that I'm going to get, you know, you could, and lots of, it can be lots of different things. It can also be, you know, imposter syndrome paying a part of it of like, this is the month I finally get found out that I am the fraud um, who is just, you know, I'm not actually any good at this. Um, but yeah, it, that, that's a big part of it. It's this kind of, we, we go through so much mental gymnastics telling ourselves that this only works because of this reason. Um, and if I try to, change it or increase it i'm that's greedy or people are going to hate me for it and there's there the, all of this stuff because that is the reality is it's it is really hard to separate you know how you feel about something and being worried how you'll be perceived um from just the raw business value because to kind of to go back to your example about the courses if i was manufacturing t-shirts mm. and i was making 20 t-shirts and launching them and they were selling out yeah. um and then someone said to me um maybe you should make more t-shirts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it would be bonkers of me to say no i <laughs> no i can't possibly make more t-shirts yeah. because no one will buy them okay but people are buying the t-shirts people want more of your t-shirts yeah. But when it's your thing, when yeah. it's a course, when it's it feels like no, 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 there is something I can't, I can't possibly change this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I've got I've I've got another friend who who has who literally write, writes books about like pricing your services as a freelancer and stuff. And his his mantra is like if you're if you're getting clients, up, keep upping your prices until you don't. Uh, and we were doing this like business mastermind thing the other day. And he was he was like, yeah, you know, the business is growing so much. We, we're getting far more clients than we can handle. I don't know how we're going to do it. We have to hire really fast. And one of the guys said was like, haven't you written a book about this? Like, what do you do when you have too much demand uh, and not enough and, and, and not enough capacity? And he was like, oh, yeah, I should up my prices. And it's just so weird how even when you're like a domain expert in this sort of thing, you just don't think about it unless someone points out that, hang on, this is a bit weird. You really should just do this. Oh, I mean, I excel at giving advice to other freelancers, yeah. but I suck at taking my own advice. Um, it's, I, I, I narrated the audio for this book and um, happened to be doing that at a point where I was pretty burnt out and there was a lot of things going on and I was kind of going through all sorts of internal dilemmas about the future of my business and all of this stuff. And I was reading this out and I was thinking, oh, this is some really good advice that I wrote. Why am I not doing it? Yeah. Um, it's it's just, I think it is human nature that it is always, even when we know what we should be doing and even when we know what is right for us, it can be really hard mm. to actually take that leap of faith and just do it. Um, yeah. It's so much easier to um, give someone else instructions and be able to so, kind of like separate the wood from the trees in someone else's business than yeah. in, in your own. Absolutely. Um, a final thing I wanted to ask about is like, how do you think of the concept of like a personal brand when it comes to, you know, traditional employment plus being a freelancer? I think personal brand makes most people cringe, <laughs> um, cringe, you know, exactly. Uh, and it, so many people bristle at the idea the hard reality is whoever you are, whatever you do, you have a personal brand. Um, the thing that people think of when your name is mentioned and you're not around, 
the emotions they feel, the words that come to mind, that is your personal brand. It's, I think it is very important to have one and to have, well, to have control over your personal brand, no matter what you do. Um, it is even more, it's, it's, it's necessary when you work for yourself um, because it is what you are known for. You know, you can call it a reputation, you can call it a purpose, you can call it a North Star, a guiding principle. There are other ways to think about it, but really what it comes down to is who you are, what you do, why you do it, and who you're doing it for. Um, and you need to be really, really clear on these things because the reality is, is that as humans, we need to be able to put things into neat little boxes so that we can compute them. You know, we do it with music and genres. Um, we do it with books. You know, we categorise things because we have we have to. That's just how we think and we operate. And so we need to just find a way to get comfortable with the idea of our own personal brand and what that means for us and taking ownership of it. Um, whilst also acknowledging that, yeah, it, it is kind of frustrating that this is part of how we have to operate, especially in this online world. Um, but a personal brand is not how many Instagram followers you have and whether you've got a blue tick or not um, and kind of laying your grid out in a certain order and with colours and whatever all of that stuff is. It, that's just all very superficial. The work kind of needs to come before that to understand who you are, what you do and why you're doing it. Um, a book that I kind of read that I found really helpful, which is not explicitly about personal brand, but I think actually really gets to the heart of it, is Simon Sinek's um, Find Your Why or Start With Why. Um, the Start With Why is the is his kind of like manifesto and then the Find Your Why is the practical kind of like how to actually figure out what your why is. Um, and that can just be a really, really helpful framework for starting to find a way to get comfortable with the idea because everyone needs a personal brand, unfortunately, um, and it does play a really, really big role. Um, because, if, again, if you think about it, I, I find it really helpful to think about it, kind of get out of yourself and step out of you, get out of your own head and think about how the potential client or people you want to work with or customers or whoever it is view you that's your it's through your personal brand and so what do you want to signal to them what do they need to know um and all of that stuff it can just make it a lot easier to kind of get on board with um i think really rallying against personal brand and being really really anti it uh is like fighting a losing battle uh because you do need one um but it's about okay well fine if i need one how can i do this in a way that's not going to make me cringe and that i'm comfortable with and actually makes sense and it's going to benefit me nice um i guess somewhat related to this is as a freelancer how do you get over the fear of self-promotion this is a big one um my secret to this is don't think of it as self-promotion just think of it as promoting your business your product, your service, whatever it is that you are doing. Mm. You you need to have self-confidence when you work for yourself and when you're selling your own skills and you know, the things that you've made, whether they are digital, digital products or, you know, physical items or 
services, whatever it is. If you're really struggling to believe in yourself, believe in the work that you're doing, because ultimately all self-promotion is, is teaching people or making people aware of this thing that you have that can help them. Um, and so it's less about kind of bragging about yourself and it's more about saying, hey, I do this thing and I think it's cool and I believe in it and I truly believe that it can help you in some way. Once you've, again, it kind of goes back to the brand thing is and the value stuff that if you know what you're doing, why you're doing it and how it's going to help people, then you can talk about that with a bit of distance from who you are as a person. Um, and it's not about promoting yourself. It's about promoting your business. It just, I'm all about creating that emotional distance and getting kind of making it. It's, it, there isn't this tension where you are the business. It is you and you can't get away from that, but you can create a bit of distance where you can see where you end and where your work begins and it is in that space that you just feel a lot more comfortable and that you're able just to treat things, you know, are people in the kind of at Apple sitting and stressing about the sort of promoting of their iPhones and MacBook Airs? No, because it's a product that they've made and they're selling. The same can apply to you, even if you're a freelance writer and um, what you're essentially selling is your writing services um, you, you're not kind of bragging about the fact that oh, I've done X, Y and Z and look how great I am it's I can write I can write well you are a client who needs some written words yeah. I can do that for you yeah. um, you know it can be as simple as that um, and so I just like to think of it less about self-promotion. I just don't, I kind of don't really have self-promotion in my sort of yeah. freelance vocabulary. I just think of it as, well, it's, it's marketing, basically. Yeah, marketing um, and um, there are, you know, we are, people talk about the fact that they hate being sold to. That's kind of bollocks because people buy things. And when they buy something that they like, they like the experience of it and they're happy with the product. There are really gross sales tactics that all of us have experienced. You don't have to sell in a gross way. You've bought something that you've enjoyed buying mm -hmm. and you've had a positive selling experience. There is no reason why you, as someone who needs to sell your products and services, yeah. can't also do so in a way that is kind of ethical and palatable and doesn't make you kind of like yeah. break out in hives. Um, <laughs> Awesome. Um, I guess final thing is, uh, why, why is the book called You're the Business? It's to get at this idea that you are the business in the sense that even if you are a freelancer and your business is just you, it is still a business. Um, it was really important to me to have business in the title rather than, you know, freelancer or boss because you are yeah. the whole business. Um, also, it's a pun it's kind of a cute way of sort of pepping people up um, and, you know, like, you are the business. Amazing. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you.
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at nOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.